This is an ABC podcast. It feels eerie being here knowing what I know now. It looks the same as it did when I was a teenager two decades ago. Ainsley Druitt-Smith always knew there was something strange going on in the compound in the town where she grew up. And the kids in the playground used to whisper the name, The Little Pebble. There's still a barbed wire fence with double gates and this enormous white cross just at the entrance. Miyuki Akiranta here, and on Earshot's season of Tales About Following, Ainsley meets one of the followers of the Order of St. Charbel and finds out what it took for her to escape the Doomsday Cult. And just a warning, this episode does contain some confronting material. I can't see anybody on the inside of the fence. There's a sign that says, no trespassing and no through road. Feels strange. We drove down towards the chapel and then I saw that the women were dressed really frumpily, you know, like covered right up to their neck, down to their elbow, past their knees. And then they're wearing this basically like a sleeveless poncho and it was mission brown and it had these a big white cross on the front of it and it had the hearts of Jesus and Mary intertwined on it. Coming here now, it makes me feel upset really. It's quite hard to comprehend the Little Pebbles crimes and what some people, some families, some of which still live here, might have endured, including people like Claire Ashman who moved here in 1997. I felt so anxious and, you know, like my throat felt so constricted, I couldn't have even thrown up if I'd tried because I just felt like I was being crushed from the outside, you know, like outside in, and I just did not want to bring my children up there. That place Claire's talking about is the holy grounds for the Order of St. Charbel. I know the property well because I used to live nearby. I remember my older sister used to say it was just a weird religious group, but we didn't know much more about it. When I decided to look a bit further into the Order, I met Claire. She told me that when she first arrived there in her 20s, it reminded her a bit of her childhood. She was raised on an isolated property in rural Victoria. Her parents followed the teachings of the Society of St Pius X, a sect that was a breakaway from the Catholic Church. We kids would help look after all the animals and do the milking twice a day and separate the milk, churn butter. Like all of us girls learned to sew, knit, embroider, patchwork. We learned to bake from scratch. You know, but the overtone of all of that was very much the religiosity, saying prayers three times a day and then, like, on Sundays travelling two to two and a half hours one way to attend Mass that was, or High Mass that was sung in Latin. We grew up without television. We grew up without having outside influence. Mum was very strict over what books we should read. We felt weird and different, but because of 
the strict religious rules that we were taught. Mum taught us that we were really special. We had the truth. God had chosen us. We had to convert the poor heathen. When Claire was 15, she met Tony. He came and stayed with her family, and he was just as devout, traditional and Catholic as Claire. He was 27 and started to show an interest in Claire. She'd never talked to anybody about love or sex, but she knew marriage and becoming a wife was important. So, four years later, they tied the knot and started a family. We were living in Melbourne at the time and I was just starting to spread my wings. I was starting to be, you know, find a little bit of independence and sort of interests and I was making friends with other mothers at my children's primary school. So I was starting to just on the peripheral of finding me. Tony wasn't the romantic type that Claire hoped he would be. He was always worried about spending too much money and was even reluctant to go on a honeymoon with his new bride. Tony was more fascinated by the last book in the Bible, Revelations, and especially what it said about the apocalypse. He always wanted to know how it was going to come about. He'd always had a belief in these seers from heaven, and he wanted to know how it would all unfold. And then he heard about the little pebble, So he was intrigued because this little pebble was supposedly the main seer for Australia and he had set up these communities and the main one was in Nowra. Tony wanted to move the family to the community of 180 people, but Claire was reluctant to go. I felt so helpless but yet so restricted at the same time. Like I... I had no choices, and to people listening, they'll think, but she did have choices, she could have just left him. And that's true, but I did not have an education. I hadn't worked after I'd gotten married, or I did for a very short period of time. Like, I had no skills. You know, at that point, I had um, four little kids, and I had not a dime to my name. What was I going to do? Tony sold their home in Victoria and bought a dark three-bedroom brick house at the compound near Nowra. Claire vividly remembers the day they arrived there in 1997 with their four children. I can't seem to ever get rid of the memory, really. It was because we got there in the February. It was hot, it was dry, it was dusty. The property was dotted with mobile homes and caravans. It actually looked dumpy, to be honest. And her instincts weren't entirely wrong. The 40-acre property used to be a caravan park. My older brother told me he and his mates used to ride their dirt bikes through the compound right near Claire's house. He remembers being chased from the grounds by a man in an old jeep. At the time, he had no idea they were followers of a religious doomsday cult founded by a man called William Cam. A megalomaniac, con man, serial pedophile. That's what we're talking about here. He's a very dangerous man. That's journalist Graham Webber. He spent three years writing a book about the man who calls himself the Little Pebble. He's very passionate, energetic, charismatic personality, but he also had this unshakable self-belief. During the 80s, William Cam developed a global following by convincing people that he was a hand-picked prophet of the Virgin Mary. These were traditionalist, 
ultra-conservative Catholics who had been left behind by the reforms of the Vatican II church reforms um, as it tried to finally modernise and you know for the 20, 20th century. They wanted to stick to their Latin prayers and rosaries, the statues of Mary everywhere. And I guess it was like they were looking for a kind of a Moses, their own leader. Here's an interview with one of his followers, a woman called Belinda. It was recorded in 1997, the same year that Claire arrived at the Holy Grounds. Initially, it was a group that made you feel good uh, about yourself through praying. And I think that was the initial attraction. You got a little bit of excitement from feeling good and feeling like you were doing something and having this this contact with this man that supposedly spoke to God and, you know, spoke to Jesus and Mary. And that's, for me, that's where the good feeling came from and that was what sort of kept me in there. After she arrived, Claire tried to get into the rhythm of praying several times a day. She took vows of poverty, chastity and obedience and she had to start preparing for the end of the world. So we had to prepare by storing, like, canned food, water, blankets. We had to ensure that we could have not just blinds, but actual black plastic that was measured to the size of each window so that you would not be able to open it up and peep outside because hell would be opened and all the devils would walk the earth. And so the sight of seeing a devil would horrify us so much we'd die on the spot. And Cam knew the devil would walk the earth because the Virgin Mary told him in regular visitations. My child, the world must know that time is short. Soon the messages throughout the world will stop and the chastisements will follow. When the hand of God strikes, there will be no time for repentance. They're the words of Cam as he spoke to some followers in Wollongong in August 1986. In the video, you can see him gazing up at the sky for 30 minutes without blinking. He said the Heavenly Mother, Mary, was talking to him in an apparition. I see Rome. I see an earthquake there too. I even see the Vatican. The Vatican seems to be on fire, and I see the stones on the beautiful basilica falling. I see a lot of carnage. These messages are remarkably similar to another so-called seer, Veronica Lucan, from Bayside in New York. Cam visited the prophetess's pseudo-shrine during the 70s and 80s, and he was enthralled. Cam just self-appointed himself as Bayside's number one representative in Australia when he came home. One of the predictions was that a flood was going to flatten Wollongong and another one involved a comet. You know, the prediction was that the tail of the comet was going to hit Earth and knock Earth off its axis, which was going to cause severe weather problems in terms of like there was going to be extreme heat, like heat that we had never felt before followed by extreme cold. So there were going to be a lot of deaths. This was God's way of basically killing off bad people <laughs> that weren't following his will. Initially, I was pretty scared. When that's the only narrative that you're being told, even though you don't want to believe it, you kind of do.
you know, when you're in an enclosed insular community and you're being told that everybody outside, you know, the whole reason for the barbed wire fence is to keep you protected from people outside, you know, because other people are bad. Like you start to view people with suspicion. Why did you continue to believe that these warnings would come when they never eventuated? Well, it's always the same narrative. These delaying tactics, you know, like, oh, you know, I've got a human mind. I could have just like misinterpreted what the Virgin Mary said to me. The Virgin Mary has had mercy on us, has had pity on us, her poor children, and she has held back God's hand. Um, you know, there's been extra sacrifices and prayers made and there's always the same story. But what that does is it keeps people on edge because you never know when, you know, like it didn't come today, but we don't know. You know, our time isn't God's time. It could come tomorrow. It could come next week. I'd basically been preparing for the end of the world every six months. It's very nerve-wracking. You're always on your toes. But did Cam really believe that the Virgin Mary was speaking to him in those locutions or visions? Graham doesn't think so. I absolutely believe he just saw it as an opportunity. And I think this is the key. I spoke to people who told me how neighbours heard him playing tape recordings of those locutions from Bayside over and over and over again. He was rehearsing to take the stage himself as a seer. It just so easily demonstrates how he was a deliberate, self-trained con artist. It was clear evidence of a copycat trying to get in on the act of spiritual deception for financial gain and spiritual control over a less discerning flock. Whether Cam believed his own predictions or not, he was also preparing for the apocalypse. But instead of collecting canned food, he was busily collecting mystical brides to become his royal dynasty. Together they would repopulate the earth after the final warning. So he used this shell of a concept from the Bible that King David had many wives and concubines. But he put the idea that it was there wasn't going to be any sexual involvement or contact. It was all symbolic. Children would be born to these queens by mystical means, just like the virgin birth. So you can see there's these concepts which uh, the traditional Catholics hold as true. It's not hard for them to believe because the mainstream Catholic Church is teaching it anyway, right? And there he is having, you know, dozens and dozens of princesses, queens, and the law was powerless to stop that in the case of, say, a 16-year-old girl under Australian law. And Claire was even called to be a princess. Her name was announced by the Virgin Mary speaking through Cam at a monthly meeting of pilgrims. They'd come to the property from as far away as Sydney. One of the young girls came running over to me and going, oh my God, the Virgin Mary has mentioned you, you're a princess. At that time, there was Xena, warrior princess on the TV. So that was the first thing I grasped. I said, oh yeah, I'm a warrior princess because I thought if I just joke about it, maybe they'll forget about it and kind of move on. And then they said, oh, you need to write to the Virgin Mary and find out what your role is and your, your mystical name and all the rest of it. And I thought, oh, no, I just don't want a part of that. Claire suspected that the mystical aspect of being a princess involved having sex with Cam. I was angry. I was shocked. I was upset. I was horrified. I can't even think of all the adjectives. All of us locals outside of the gates were oblivious to what was happening inside. 
So we were all shocked when in the early 2000s, two women who, like Claire, had been chosen as mystical brides, went to the police to accuse Cam of sexually assaulting them. They showed the police dozens of handwritten letters that Cam had sent them when they were 14 and 15. Here's one of the letters, and it's pretty confronting stuff. Touching you and kissing you that night was beautiful. I could see you are desiring me and wishing to give yourself to me. I would like another session like the last if I could before I go, so your desire for me will get unbearable. I do love you, my butterfly, and I think you have a sexy body, and I'm so glad it belongs to me. Much love and kisses, the night. I was only 16 when Cam was charged with assaulting those girls. I remember reading the stories in the local paper and I felt pretty uneasy. It was all too close to home. By now, Claire had been reluctantly following the cult's rules for 10 years and she'd had four more children. Tony was beginning to move up the ranks of the order. He'd been chosen as a subdeacon, so he was even less engaged with his family. He'd also developed a gambling problem, which only exacerbated their vow of poverty. I remember I was picking out the nappies one day and I'm just like, I literally felt wrung out like a rag. You know how you use a rag so many times and it just becomes thinner and thinner and it's got little holes in it. And then when you wash it, it's just limp and it's just hanging there. And I felt like that. And I just thought to myself, I just can't do this anymore. I could just never be good enough. I was never going to be able to complete enough prayers, enough sacrifices, whatever, to be able to get into heaven. And I just thought, I remember specifically thinking that I had no idea what it was like to live in the real world, but it had to be easier than what I was doing. Up until that point, and yes, Claire's talking about the early 2000s, she'd never thought she could leave her marriage because of her strict Catholic beliefs around divorce. I'd been brought up that being a solo mum was just, it was hugely shameful. How can you even lift your head and look at people if you're a solo mother? Like, what have you done? Some of the followers, including Tony, had jobs outside of the holy grounds. Many of them worked at the various general stores that Cam owned. The takeaway shop at Camberwarra was one of them. My brothers and I used to ride our bikes there to buy hot chips and lollies. We called the shop assistants the little pebble people. Now I know their wages and Tony's wages went back into funding the cult. And Claire's house was also owned by Cam. She didn't realise for many years, but Tony had agreed to sign the deeds to their home over to Cam only weeks after they'd poured their savings into buying it. But in a twist of fate, that deal presented Claire with an opportunity to get out. Cam was actually paying the mortgage on the house that we were living in. And then um, once I started writing letters questioning doctrinal issues with him, basically he got annoyed and he funneled the mortgage repayments of the property that we were living in to his court case, which then brought about an eviction. The sheriff showed up on my doorstep in early August 2006 and, you know, with a wad of papers and said, ma'am, you have 12 days to leave. And I went, oh, my God, am I happy? And I think he must have been a bit shocked because obviously he'd evicted a lot of people and normally you don't get that kind of reaction. 
despite your excitement, was there some trepidation given how long you'd been sheltered from, I guess, the real world, if I can put it that way? Oh, yeah. I had never applied for a rental on my own in my life. What the hell was I going to do? How was I going to do that? I don't know. I just knew that I needed to find a house for me and my kids. Like, that was imperative. So I did have help through a lady from Nara Christian School. My eldest went to school with her eldest. You know, I knew she was a good Christian woman. So I did trust her and she was amazing. She was amazing. I'd never met Claire and I was nervous about it, about going there, because I didn't know her at all. And I was wondering, am I overstepping the mark here? And I was really aware that she might not want me there at all. That compassionate woman was Margie Jurgens. All I knew was they were being evicted from their home and they had eight children and they had nowhere to go. And that was sort of enough for me to go, well, I can just go there at least and see whether I can be of any help to her. You could just tell that, you know, she was anxious and stressed. And then I remember saying to her, so do you have somewhere to go? Like, where are you going to go? And she said, I don't know. I've got a meeting with the real estate tomorrow. And I said, would you like me to come with you? And she said yes. And then the next day we moved them in. Although Tony did move with Claire and their eight children, he didn't lift a finger to help. The cracks in their marriage were, by now, pretty deep. I was surprised at her strength. She wasn't a blubbering mess, which you'd almost expect. She wasn't that at all. As Claire started to find her feet on the outside, it was only then that she began to realise the emotional impact of living under the little pebble. When I left the cult in the beginning, I felt so much shame, I felt so much humiliation and so much embarrassment about A, having lived there, B, being so backward. I knew I was backward, like educationally, everything. I knew I was backward. And C, my clothing and then everything else. And I found it so difficult you know what? It was my identity. Who was I? I actually asked myself, I like, who is Claire? What does she like? What are her favourite colours? What are her favourite music? Like, I took it right down to the bare bones because I'd been just going along in life for someone else, which was Tony, and ultimately, you know, strict Catholicism, but I'd never thought about me. What are we having? I made that lamb. <gasps> the lamb shank one. With the potato. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Claire eventually ended her marriage with Tony and she became the sole breadwinner for their eight children. She's since remarried and moved to Brisbane, where she still lives with her two youngest. This is what my childhood has taught me. Like, I just love food. It's the natural food, though, isn't it? Yeah. It's not the processed... Because we, we couldn't afford processed food. So we had all the... Uh, She's making, she's like a hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) Eloise was too young to remember her early years at that old caravan park near Nowra, but she says she's relieved her mum protected their family. I just feel so grateful to be where I am and so thankful for mum for her being so brave and standing up. I'm so young, like, I've got so much life in me and, you know, I've got freedom And it's not just her children Claire's helped to find freedom. She's become an unlikely leader. She mentors people around the world, helping them to break the shackles of oppressive cults. 
and she's delivered four TED Talks, including at Norwich in England and this one at Ipswich in Queensland. After a lifetime of others creating boundaries for me, mental, physical and emotional manipulation, I've taken back my power and I've created boundaries that are healthy for me. Each and every one of you have the opportunity to make over your life, create the kind of life you want to live. Is it strange to think about the fact that you now have sort of your own following in a way? I never thought about it like that. (laughs) What I wanted to do in sharing my story is to smooth the path for anybody else leaving because I have spoken to people who have been like women who have just been completely battered by their experience and they don't want to talk about it because they're so traumatised, they're so hurt, they have so much pain and they can't talk about it. They just can't get past it. And I wanted to be able to smooth the way and try and help those who have left because we can fumble about for such a long time and not know which way is up. And I just wanted to help others to learn from the mistakes that I'd made. Because I just did not know anybody that was weird like me. In 2005 and again in 2007, Cam was convicted of sexually assaulting the two girls who went to the police. He spent almost a decade in prison. He declined an interview with me, but here he is speaking with prisoner advocacy group Justice Action about his crimes. And he continues to deny any wrongdoing. I was given a letter from a a close uh, friend of mine. And in this letter uh, given to me, uh, this young girl uh, put it to me that unless uh, I paid money to her and to her friends, uh, she would go to the police and have me charged for sexual harassment and within about a month or so I was charged. Cam lost some followers after he was charged and sent to prison but there were still people who remained devoted to him. So it wasn't a surprise when he attempted to return to his holy grounds after his release. I'm now a journalist with ABC Illawarra and I remember covering the story a local man started a petition to ban Cam from coming back to the area. Then only months later, he was back behind bars for a second time because he breached his supervision orders when he contacted some young women through his wife's Facebook. He's now out of jail again, but he remains living in Sydney under police surveillance. And while the Catholic Church has tried to distance itself from him and his cult for three decades... The Order of St. Charbel continues to prosper online around the world. But have a look at how the world's been since 2019. In Australia, we have these apocalyptic bushfires. We go straight into a global pandemic, the worst in 100 years. We have massive financial upheaval. We're all doing our own prepping, aren't we, on toilet paper? (laughs) You go down to the supermarket, you can't get a, a bag of frozen peas anywhere. And it's like... That's a bit disconcerting for even uh, an everyday person. When you've come out of a cult, that has a certain uh, potency. And that's the sort of thing that Little Pebble was warning about. So that is only going to strengthen people like Little Pebble and groups like it 
And there are, he's not the only one. There are many groups like this. What I actually find more baffling, new members are coming in. I can't explain that. I can't excuse that. There is more than enough information out on the public record about this guy and what he's done. And it's an insult to the women who have been molested and abused by this man. It's an insult to them to then join up, I believe, to join up membership and, and support him against them. Cam's not allowed back here to the compound near Nowra. But I wonder about those people and families who still live here. Are they stuck because they don't have the money after leaving it all to Cam? Or do they still believe him? For Claire, her relationship with religion and with God is complex. You know, I have been through those times where I've just sort of not believed in God, but then I have. And, and honestly, right now, I've just sort of made my own blend. But since I moved up here to Brisbane, I haven't practised formally, but I love going into a church. It's the comfort, it's the familiarity, it's the quiet, it's the soothing. I love that. I find myself kind of tiptoeing like I did as a kid and still, just tiptoeing in and like, oh, I love that silence. I love the smell of the incense. And I'm not resentful or angry about my past because I, I have learned from it. I've learned from it and I'm still learning from it. Follow Me and the Virgin Mary was produced by Ainsley Druitt-Smith on the lands of the Dharawal people, with sound engineering from Simon Branthwaite. The supervising producer was Claudia Taranto. I'm Miyuki Okiranta, and next time in Earshot's Follow Me season, you're in for a bit of fun. We're following the incurable romantics, older women who are massive fans of the 80s post-punk band The Cure. I mean, who doesn't love The Cure? I'll catch you then. This is an ABC podcast.